Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. So in this episode, we are going to talk about the theological ramifications of the conversation between free will and determinism. In this episode, there are a few things that would be helpful to remember. One, this conversation did not start with John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. It certainly did not start at the Reformation. And this conversation is at the very heart of Western civilization. And while it has significant implications in the Judeo-Christian theology, we're not the only civilization to reckon with these ideas. So for instance, the Greek tragedies, such as the Odyssey, the Iliad, all of these things deal with fate and destiny and to what extent a person has choice or the ability to move in that world based on their own actions. So this is not a Reformation conversation, though it did take a really unique historical shape during that time, and that is significantly impacting us today and how we how we talk about this. Uh, number two thing to hold in the mind of the listener is that there is reasonable debate about how important this conversation is. Some would place it higher on the list of must-affirm beliefs than others. However, there is general consensus, and it is the belief of those on this podcast, that it is possible to be a creed-affirming Christian and believe in either determinism or free will. This is an intramural debate between Christians, and that means that we that we disagree. This should inspire in us generosity and humility. Uh, that may seem really obvious, but it needs to be stated. Uh, number three, if you didn't catch it from the previous episode, the three voices on this podcast believe that free will arguments are the most faithful. As we discuss these things, we're going to do our best to present other ideologies as accurately as possible. I'm going to be representing the Calvinist view um, after watching popular debates, being coached by, and having lengthy conversations with my Calvinist friends who I have dinner with every week. I'm going to give it my best shot, but I acknowledge that I may not represent every angle accurately. There's also a significant variety of belief within Calvinism. So it may be that I espouse a belief or I answer a question or ask a question that is common to one group, but not others. So stick with us. Hopefully we will all understand each other a little better by the end of this episode. Thank you, Jordan. That was very, very, very helpful. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'd like for us to dive in here to the doctrinal formula TULIP because it provides a clear and concise summary of reformed beliefs. And we're kind of going to talk about what those beliefs are and then what the free will argument against them would be. One of the things we need to know is that um, not all Calvinists agree about all of these five points. Hopefully we'll be able to parse it out a little bit as we go. But what this conveys, this acronym conveys, is the five major points from the Canons of Dort. We won't get into the history of the five points because we have massive ground to cover. Um, but the listener just has to know that there's debate about the usefulness of this acronym. Um, 
not because the content of the five points has changed per se, but because of the general lack of nuance that's involved with acronyms that we have to remember these things. So Stan, would you be willing to get us started with our T here? Tee us up, if you will. Huh. <laughs> Very nice. Yes. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, I will mention though, uh, I really do want to affirm that this is a place that uh, good people disagree. Brothers and sisters come down in different places on this. They've thought about it. They've got good reasons for where where they are. Uh, I've seen too many times people break fellowship over this, and it's just it's just not not to be that way. And so, uh, you know, I, I've thought about this, have a view that I hold rather strongly, but I absolutely could be wrong on it. I'm open to being critiqued on it. Um, it's not something that uh, I am going to go to the mat on or die over or break fellowship over. So I just want to get that on the table that I respect my brothers and sisters who disagree on this. And I, too, I appreciate your words, want to make sure not to uh, paint the other view as uh, as silly or in any way not reasonable. So I'll do my best, but uh, I might fail. Uh, but that that's my goal. So T in tulip is for total depravity. Uh, the doctrine of depravity is simply the doctrine of the fall that we uh, in Adam have fallen from uh, the the state we were created in of intimacy with God. Sin has taken root and. Uh, and so we are depraved in that sense. The uh, Calvinist understanding of total depravity is, and I mentioned this last time, both extensive and intensive. Uh, it extends to every dimension of our being. So our mental life is uh, affected by the fall. Our emotions are affected by the fall and so on. But also it's intensive in that we are no longer able to, uh, to have any proper thoughts about God or proper emotions toward God, or proper willings toward the things of God. So it's total in both of those ways, and that's that's important. JP, you want to add something? Yes, I, I uh, want to affirm my agreement with uh, your approach to this. Uh, Doug Grothuis and uh, Sam Storms are two just dear brothers of mine, and they're what I would call strong Calvinists, and I'm going to represent strong Calvinism of, of uh, rather than having to... Co- constantly qualify mm-hmm. my remarks, mm-hmm. but I agree with your your attitude and your approach. Uh, and so uh, I think, you know, it's important to recognize that total depravity for the strong Calvinist means that we are literally dead uh, in the in the sense of not being able to exercise our faculties and express faith. So it it follows from this that you have to be born again before you can have faith in Christ. So one is actually regenerated prior to belief in in Christ because a dead man can't exercise faith. And, uh, you know, as one person put it, you don't preach to a dead man. I mean, uh, or you don't reason with a dead man because they're they're not able to respond. Uh, So that's just part of the 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 uh, T. Mm, yes, and in the Canons of Dort, this is the third and fourth head, Article 3. We get the quotation, therefore all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, 
and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, or to dispose themselves to reformation. Good. Yeah, and there's some nuance there that we hopefully will get into because the at least the Wesleyan Armenian would affirm most of what you just said as well mm-hmm. with one little nuance. So I'll just put that out there uh, in, in agreeing with total depravity, at least in an extensive sense. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I appreciate about this position is that it seems to be the desire of the Calvinist to orient themselves as being significantly less than God. In no way is a human person really like God. Uh, So this is very different than a doctrine of the Imago Dei that would, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, that would say that um, there is something of the divine nature in us. This would say, no, that was broken completely at the fall. Um, There is nothing good about us, nothing. And no possible good could come from someone who hasn't been regenerated. They're completely dead, as JP emphasized. I want to make sure we clarify one thing on that. At least all the Calvinists I've read and talked to would say that that uh, an unregenerate person still bears the image of God, so that if you murdered uh, an unbeliever, you would be guilty of uh, uh, aggressing against the very image of God. The, the, the issue is that the, the, the the various powers that constitute the image are incapable of being exercised, uh, certainly uh, in any way that would uh, oh, be pleasing to God, or so you have to be regenerated first. So I just wanted to say that. How would that be different in a Wesleyan Arminian view? The best book on this is by Eric Olson. Uh, and uh, it is entitled Arminian Theology. Uh, is it Roger? It's Roger Olson. I'm sorry. Yeah, Forgive Roger me. Olson. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he makes clear that uh, if you're committed to Arminian theology, it doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. That's some hold that, but that is not entailed by it. And it also doesn't mean that you can choose the gospel uh, in a completely fallen state. So, and I'll explain that. Uh, the, the, there are two responses I have to that reading of the T. And one is I would not say that that the that the fall is uh, intensive. That is, it runs so deep that I am lit- I am literally dead and incapable of of in, of anything of, of any good. Uh, I would say it's intensive. That it, it covers every aspect of me. But I'm still in God's image, and I'm still able to exercise reason and emotion and will to some degree. And, you mean it's uh, extensive? Uh, it's what did I say? Intensive twice. <laughs> I mean, no, it's extensive. It it covers every aspect of me. This so so that would be one uh, thing that I would say that we still have uh, uh, enough of our faculties that we can exercise faith in the gospel. Uh, and if I reject the gospel, that's up to me. I, I could have uh, responded, but I didn't. So that would be a free will, a libertarian free will view. The second way to go about it, 
uh, is to say that that at birth, God disperses common grace on everyone. And so at that point, we could not choose the gospel, but God restores our libertarian freedom so that we are now able to make the choice as to side with him or against him. That's another way to go about it. And people say, well, that's not explicitly taught, but and neither is the Trinity, and there are other things, but what 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 is the basis for this is you find things in scripture and it's legitimate to draw logical entailments or implications from what's there. And so the 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 non-Calvinists would say it's very clear that there's a libertarian freedom that is bestowed upon us, but yet it seems like in our natural state we cannot choose the gospel. And so it follows then that common grace is the solution to that. Now that's not my view, but I'm just saying that's two responses. Stan, do you want to pick up on that? Uh I'll mention a few things. So um if uh if we share Adam's nature, which we do from scripture, and uh he one has the image of God and two has libertarian free will, which seems to be the case, seems that in the Genesis passage, he's clearly given choices he, that he could choose or not choose to say eat the fruit in the garden. Uh and uh, and so if he has libertarian free will, we share his nature, then we would share that as part of what it is to be human, part of human nature. Now, of course, it's defaced. Going back to the same point, uh, it is fallen, uh, it's inoperable, but that doesn't mean we have lost it. And so uh, it does seem to be consistent with that, that overall theme of scripture. And I've got actually an article where I unpack this some, maybe we can link to, but consistent that uh, that God in his desire to have intimacy with us, which was the initial desire in creation, would through his what is sometimes referred to as prevenient grace or grace that goes before mm-hmm. one's salvation make it such that that one can exercise that capacity again if one so chooses again as a uh, as a libertarian choice and um and it does seem to make a great deal of sense of the the biblical text uh as well as what we know in other areas and uh Without getting into a lot of detail on this, and I have written on this, so you can link to it. But uh, well, I'll, I'll just tell the story of how I came to this briefly. Uh, I had a, a a class where I was struggling with this issue, and I had a class in philosophy of science at the same time. And in philosophy of science, I realized this, the same issues come uh, up where there's these different data sets that seem to be op- be opposite of one another, and they're adjudicated by other things we know from within that field or other fields. And in, in this case, it's like there's a set of passages that seem to be very clearly talking about God's election of us before the foundation of the world and predestination that's unconditional, it seems. And then there's other passages of Jesus saying, well, I wish you would have come to me, but you didn't. And and these invitations that seem to be legitimate offers if one responds. And so the data sets are competing. And so it's helped me to look at other uh, things we know from scripture and other fields as well to adjudicate and end up where I I am. Um, and 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 understanding a lot of those texts uh, where God is taking the issue, we are dead in our sin and transgression, but he he 
allows us to recover what it is to be essentially human, to have these capacities that were defaced by the fall, but are still there, such that in his prevenient grace that goes before, we're back in a position with Adam to be able to make a choice, uh, a libertarian choice. And uh, and based on that, we have salvation in his name or not. Well, let me just reinforce it by saying, in my view, love cannot be coerced or else it's not love. If someone is programmed to say, I love you, uh, but they really aren't expressing what they uh, they're freely expressing it, it's not really love to me. It, and so love it requires a free choice to love or not to love. And I also want to say that in the book of Acts, and even the Old Testament prophets, you see the Old Testament prophets criticizing the pagan idols by using an argument. And the mm-hmm. argument was that the war, the universe is too big for something that small to have created and designed it. Indeed, when, you know, when you're worshiping your idol, sometimes it falls over and you got to pick it up again. Uh, and so, and then the New Testament, you simply can't read the the, the, the approach of the apostles without seeing they argued and reasoned with people. And that, in my view, assumed that your reasoning and arguments would make a difference to them so that they they could embrace them if they wanted, if they chose to, or reject it if they chose to. Is it possible that the apostles and the rest of scripture, um, the one you mentioned, JP, is in Acts 17 and ongoing in that just really great speech of Paul um, at the altar to the unknown God. Is it possible that that was just the moment where God dispensed that grace? So it wasn't as if the person or the people that were there were choosing to follow, but it's as if something was unlocked there about their election. Well, possible, but not plausible. And the reason it's not plausible is it's an entirely an ad hoc solution that is not exegetically derived from the text. It's read into the text to preserve uh, the very point that's at debate. And that begs the question, uh, because you can't assume your view to demonstrate your view if you're in a discussion with those who disagree. That's just a simple logical fallacy. And the other thing is that uh, Acts 17 is not the only place this was done. Mm-hmm. There, are all, there are all kinds of examples all throughout the book of Acts of, of this taking place. So it, it, you, you, you're going to have to say either they, they adopted a methodology that was really contrary to the way God really works, or perhaps unknown to them, God... As a deus ex machina, a God out of a a machine, he just plops in and drops grace on the situation. So their their reasoning really didn't have anything to do with it. And I I just find that all throughout the New Testament especially, there are exhortations to contend earnestly for the faith and to be ready to give a reason. And and Jesus himself did this, uh, gave evidence for his claims. If you don't believe me because of my words, then look at the works I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Dan, can I ask you to go back and uh, maybe use an example to give the intensive and extensive distinction for us in total depravity? Sure. Yes. Let's take the example JP was just mentioning. And you mentioned in terms of reason, uh, Paul on Mars Hill, if the depravity is 
both extensive and intensive. It extends to our reasoning capabilities, and we have no ability whatsoever to understand arguments that are offered, for instance, by Paul and Mars Hill, uh, that there must be a creator God to explain what we observe around us. Okay. So it's extensive, extends there, and intensive. It is so, so thoroughgoing that we lose all capacity to reason about the things of God when somebody would bring arguments or evidence in front of us. The extensive view says, yes, reason is affected by the fall, but not intensively, not fully, not completely such that we can no longer have any true thoughts about God. And in fact, we are able to see the truth of certain premises, for instance, that Paul is talking about these idols they made and how they don't have the type of power uh, needed to, to explain the effect of the universe that's observed. And from those premises, draw the conclusion that there must be a God who is all-powerful, and, and, and that's the true God that ought to be worshipped. So the, the person, the Arminian, who sees uh, extensive but not intensive depravity says, yeah, one can have that conversation with a non-believer. And he or she can see the truth of those premises, the truth of that conclusion that follows, and from that, not immediately come to faith necessarily, but perhaps remove an obstacle in their process as they're contemplating the claims of Christ. Hmm. That's good. And I, and, and I would say also that uh, Stan's use of uh, intensive yields an interpretation of us being dead, meaning that we have our abilities are utterly inoperable. Mm-hmm. But but uh, I and others that hold the, the view I do would take death as separation. And so while we are, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the degree of the inoperability of our faculties. Mm-hmm. It has to do with us being separated from God. At death, the soul separates from the body. Uh, we're not annihilated. Uh, we're separated. So that would be another thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Mm. Let's move on to unconditional election. Well, I'll, I'll start with this one. Um Unconditional election means that that God elects whomsoever he will, and he does not take into account anything external to himself on the basis of which he elects. So so his knowledge of whether we would respond if he gave us an offer plays no role in this. It's not conditioned on his foreknowledge of what we would do if we got a chance to hear. So it is across the board just election according to God, whom God desired to choose and those whom he desired not to choose. Yeah, Calvin says in the Institutes, therefore, though all of us are by nature suffering from the same disease, only those whom it pleases the Lord to touch with his healing hand will get well. The others whom he in his righteous judgment passes over, waste away in their own rottenness until they are consumed. There is no other reason why some persevere to the end while others fall at the beginning of the course. Okay, it's very important for me to interject something here because they talk about our own our own rottenness. Now, there are two ways that rottenness could be our own. The first is that the rottenness could be inside of us. Okay? Uh, so, in that sense, this is my own stomach because it's inside of me. It's within my, my body. Well, that doesn't make any difference because it could have been planted there by somebody else. 
the morally relevant sense of it of my own rottenness is that my rottenness is the result of my own choices to to develop myself choice after choice and uh, into becoming a rotten person. Thus, I am culpable for my rottenness because it's the result of my choices. And I, I think that, you know, the, the Calvinist will use active language with God's decree, but then he will use passive language about the non-elect. He'll say he passed them over. Mm-hmm. But there, but you have to understand there's no difference between act, the active and passive voice in, in God's decree, because uh, uh, when he decrees something, it, it must happen. And the chain of events that lead up to the person uh, being regenerated are passive events that lead up to it. So there is actually no agency or action on on those who are, quote, passed over. It's not like they did things Mm. that justified them being passed over. It It was merely God's action. To, to, to choose some and his action to pass others over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it isn't because of their own depravity, because they didn't have a choice to do things to, to become depraved. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be argued that they're in Adam fallen? So it's not their choices they've made, but because they have the nature passed on or the fallen nature passed on by Adam that they are participants in that? Yes. And how does that fit then? Yes, Dan. I think, I mean, Paul Copen has written some good stuff on the fact that he. It, it seems like the scriptures does not say that we are judged because we have a fallen nature and that we're in Adam. We're judged because we sin. And uh, so... A person who is fallen and in Adam um, will inevitably sin, but doesn't have to sin. But by saying he doesn't have to sin on any given occasion, it it, it still follows that he will sin uh, sooner or later. And and when he does, in fact, sin, then he will be uh, come under judgment. So being an Adam does not cause us to be under judgment. It, it, it imparts to us a sin nature. And then we exercise that nature by, by sinning and falling under judgment. Uh, and it may be that, that the prevenient grace uh, is given so that people uh, uh, can choose the gospel, but they cannot, they will not do what it takes uh, to in any way to earn salvation. Hmm. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith Podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. Here's a, here is a problem that I have with that that's very relevant, because I had a discussion with some Calvinists on this. And 
uh, I, I said, that just doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem right to me. And they said, well, God doesn't owe us anything. I'm inclined to agree with that. But but I, so I said, this is not about God owing me something. It's about what it means to say he loves me. Now, when I when I played with my kids when they were younger, um, I, I didn't put the newspaper down. We used to have those things. And, and, and instead go out and tickle my daughters and go swing them in the swing set and stuff. Uh, you know, it wasn't like my wife said, you know, you have a duty to go out there and, and, and play with your kids. Uh, I, I did it because I loved them. And I, I don't understand what it means to say God is a loving God and he loves the world. And it does say the world without qualification in John 3 16 mm-hmm. uh if he simply chooses what appears to me to be arbitrarily to save some and not others here's an illustration and then I'll turn it over to Stan if there are five people drowning in a lake and I'm on the dock and I have five life rafts uh, or vests that I could toss and save all five of them uh but I just choose to give two of them life vests and 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 the other drowned and i know they're going to i don't know what it would mean for you for someone to say he loved he loved they were all might say they were all my children he really loved all of his kids because Mm -hmm. if i loved all of them and it was within my power to keep them all from drowning then i would do so Mm -hmm. if i do not do so then i'm i don't really love them all equally now, uh, the response is, well, there are different ways that God loves, and he loves the elect in one way and the non-elect in another. And I, I don't know what that other, I don't, that doesn't seem like love to me. Yeah. And, and I don't see it in the scripture either. I don't see uh, any exegesis that shows that that's the case. Stan, do you want to jump in and push back or comment? No, no, I I, I think that's a good. The only thing I would add is uh, to... Uh, develop the parallel a little bit more suppose all five children had done what you told them not to do and deserved to be in the water yes it wouldn't make it any better for you to choose not to throw them all uh, a a life preserver even if they deserved it yes very good very Mm -hmm. good I told them not to go swimming and they did it anyway you know Yeah. yeah yeah excellent that is really good really good I like that and to take that even one step further, suppose one of those children in, intended on making a suicide attempt. They did not want to be saved. Would they then be able to reject the life raft? I'd still throw them one in, in the hopes that they change their mind. I would offer it. Now, if the person rejected the life raft, I would argue that they they could have, they weren't determined to reject it. They did, in fact, reject it, but they didn't have to reject it. Mm. That's the key thing. You have to understand that in a in a deterministic, whether theistic or non-theistic uh, perspective, it isn't that you will do certain things. It's that you must do them. You have to do them. And that's the key that I want us to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And even here, I was invited by Calvinist friends. They're like, well, reframe that a little bit and think instead about 
the great and wonderful love God has for you as one of the elect. That means that, you know, you are, you're one of the chosen. And, you know, instead of thinking of who it doesn't apply to, think about who it does apply to. And doesn't that make you feel uh, so much more loved by God than if you would have chosen? Now, there is a line I of thinking I, I certainly just don't understand. That does not make me feel more loved. But that was something that actually several in different podcasts that people said like, okay, try not to think about unconditional election as a negative. Think about it as a positive, as, as something that is, you know, for you. And I thought I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I can do that. Well, and if there were five houses in my block that were burning and the fire department came up and they had the capabilities, if the fire department could put out the fire and save the people that were trapped in all five houses, but they just passed over the first three houses, but they they saved my family and the neighbor next to me's family. That wouldn't make me feel loved any more than if he saved all five. It, uh, his his love toward me is what makes me feel loved, not his love toward me as opposed to not having it for somebody else. As a matter of fact, if he if he did that, I would have questions about what it really meant when he said he loved me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would call us into question. I don't really know if I understand what your love is all about. I, I'm confused about this. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm, uh, this is getting to perseverance of the saints, but we're, we're running out of time. But I do want to say something in this context. I believe in eternal security, which means that once you're saved, you, you, you cannot lose your salvation. You could lose rewards. Uh, and I don't believe in perseverance of the saints, which is the last part of the tulip, P, which mm-hmm. means that once you're saved, you will continue in godly behavior because God will bring it about. Uh, that that you will uh, 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 until you're you're taken home. Well, now think of what that means. Suppose that a person is saved and they walk with the Lord, but then they engage in in godless behavior like the prodigal son, and they reject the faith and so on. What do I say to that? Well, I say it's possible that they never were saved to begin with. I I would want to question that. But I would admit that they could very well have made a genuine choice and they've turned away. And just the fact that they turned away doesn't it in and of itself imply that they that they were never saved, that that they possibly. But now that this person says, well, think how wonderful it is that you've been elected. But how can anybody know they're elected until they until they're at the end of their life mm-hmm. and they realize that they persevered? Because right now I've persevered so far. But, you know, what if I went on uh, for the next five years of my life, I, I, I began to uh, blasphemy Jesus. So how can anybody know you're saved if you have to persevere until you've persevered? So I would challenge that. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on that, I do want to just mention that I've, I've always found it somewhat of a straw man to argue that because we make a free choice to trust Christ, we can always make a free choice to untrust Christ. So we could always lose our salvation at any moment by that choice. Now, I'm sure not all Calvinists bring that critique of the Arminian view, but I've heard it often. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just don't 
see the logic of it. There are so many choices we make that we are free to make, but we can't reverse them once they're made. And the classic example is jumping off the 10th floor of a building. I mean, I can have all the free will I want till I take that step. But once I take that step, I just never went back. So uh, it's a free choice, but it's not a reversible choice. And that's how I would understand an Arminian view of, of libertarian free will related to trusting Christ. It's entirely free, but once one makes it, one is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Uh, and one's salvation is secure. And you can't undo that. I mean, once you enter the once you enter the family, right? You can cannot reverse being a part of that family. Now you can be a you can be a person that's living lasciviously and you're and you hate your family or this, that, and the other, but you're still you're still strictly speaking born into that family. And right. and so mm-hmm. Stan's point is just spot on. Some choices you can't reverse and being regenerated is is and born again is one that you can't I mean, it happened, you can't reverse it. Mm-hmm. So something that is implied in our arguments against uh, the Calvinist position is our view of time. And that has been one of the arguments that has come up recently in Calvinism as a way to as a way to kind of work around some of these things. So I've heard Calvinists say things like, God's causality is not like our causality because you know, God's not confined to space and time. So if you go back to our time episode, I, I think that would be really helpful. But why doesn't that work? Because two different objects cause things in different ways. But what they all have in common as a cause is that the effect is completely dependent upon it. <laughs> and so I don't care if God is outside time, which I don't believe he is now. I think he was without a created world. I mean, I believe he's stepped into time. He has complete foreknowledge. But But even if we grant that, while there may be different ways that God causes, for him to cause something is the same as me to cause it, because what causes do is they necessitate their effects. They bring them about in the sense that once the cause has act, acted, the effect must happen. And that's the where God's causation and, and our causation is the same, and that's the problem. It isn't the other aspects about his causality that raises the problem. So I'd like for someone who raised that to point out what is it exactly about God's causalities from his position of timelessness that that makes it the case that it doesn't rob us of our libertarian freedom. Mm-hmm. And if they if there's no answer to that, then this is a this is a, a distinction without a difference. It, it's just not relevant, I don't think. I don't mean to be harsh about it, but I'm just trying to be as honest as I can here. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. So one of the actually most controversial parts of the TULIP doctrine, and this is usually the one you'll hear people say, I'm a five-point Calvinist or I'm a four-point Calvinist. And this is usually the one that drops, not always, but usually the one that drops if they're a four-point Calvinist, and that is limited atonement. Um, And it is actually debatable whether or not Calvin himself ever believed such a thing. Nevertheless, the canons of Dort assert that it is the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, 
should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. So in those verses we we referenced earlier, this is where some of the logic we used earlier applies here. One of the questions is what does all mean? For whomsoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So German reformers, quite a few of them, would bring forth the idea that all refers to all classes of people, not necessarily all individuals, or that in the cases of scripture where all is used and it seems to indicate everyone, um, that is actually applied only to the elect. So what would a Wesleyan Arminian say to something like that? Well, let me offer first, and then JP, I want to hear your thoughts, but there's something I very much appreciate about limited atonement and very something I very much uh, don't appreciate. <laughs> what I appreciate is it is a uh, an attempt to be consistent and follow what certain things that one believes entail. So uh, if one takes the view of total depravity as intensive and extensive, it follows that the election must be unconditional because there's no there's nobody doing any choosing. It's it's by fiat, by God. If that's the case, it would make sense that his death applies only to those he's elected because he knows who they are. He knows that they need uh, a savior. And so he dies for them. It's limited. So it's it's a logically consistent view that I think follows from those first two points. And the other two, I think, in some ways do follow from that. So it's it's mm. a coherent system. I appreciate that. I think we ought to try to have beliefs that are coherent with one another. Mm -hmm. But my problem is that it does seem to be a pretty uh, challenging doctrine to get from Scripture. In fact, the Scriptures seem to be very clearly contrary to this. And I think that's why a lot of Calvinists, don't know if it's a majority, I, I know a lot who who would be four-point Calvinists and and not accept this as one of the one of the tenets of that view of salvation for just those reasons. Well, I agree. I, I don't think that's logically possible because I don't. Uh, uh, if you take the standard strong, strong Calvinist view of T U and I N P, the two the total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. If you take those, it's not that that limited atonement is just consistent with it. That's true. But they logically entail it. Mm -hmm. That means that you you can run a modus ponens and a modus tollens argument on it. And the modus ponens argument would go like this. If T, U, I, and P are the way we Calvinists understand it, then limited atonement follows. T, U, I, and P are the way we understand it. Therefore, you you must believe in limited atonement. I argue this way. If T, U, I, and P are the way that the Calvinists understand it, then limited atonement follows. But limited atonement is false. Therefore, the way Calvinists take T, U, I, and P is false. And, and that's the modus tollens. That's the modus tollens version. Yeah, that's right. If I had to engage in in what I would consider to be 
kind of mental gymnastics or ad hoc solutions when I'm dealing with the biblical text and it looks for all I can tell to be saying one thing, but lo and behold, we discovered in the last handful of centuries that it, that it, we, we misunderstood it for 16 centuries or however long. When it, when it says God so loved the world, and it says later he does not desire that anyone should perish. That isn't any ethnic group, because it isn't groups that perish anyway. It's individuals in the groups in the sense relevant to salvation. That's pers- That's individual. So I look at those texts, and I think, well, for the life of me, they say what they say. And if I had to kind of twist them so they they say, well, he just all just means the elect and all that. I'm thinking, you know what? That is not that that is mishandling the scriptures. And I, I don't I just think that you're stuck with that on pain of logical inconsistency. Mm-hmm. I think there it's also especially tricky because they hold so strongly to sola scriptura. Yep, I agree. You get three minutes to get to I. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Do you think we can do it? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Irresistible grace. The canons of Dort assert that God produces both the will to believe and the act of believing also. So that grace can't be resisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the, the Luke says that the Pharisees resisted the boule of God. And there's a boule and thelema, I believe it is, two words for will. And a lot of New Testament scholars think boule is the strongest word for will. And so what it means is the Pharisees actually resisted God's will. And then then you'll divide, well, there's one kind of will and another kind of will. The point that is being made by Luke is that God willed that they do certain things, and they they resisted and didn't do it. Stan's reference to Jesus said, uh, I reached out to you and wanted to gather you as as a a mother handing her chicks. But mm-hmm. but you would not. And that just looks to me like they resisted these invitations. So um, I think that th- this doesn't harmonize with so much of what happens in the Bible that I-, I think grace is resisted all the time. And if you're a monergist in salvation, that means only one will is involved God's, then I think you're probably going to be monergistic in sanctification that God's will alone is what brings us. But then why are we at all different levels? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't God bring us all to this, to maturity? Why would he leave some of us floundering and we don't make very much progress until we die, but others make more. So I find there to be implications of this doctrine that are, are that are morally and, and biblically troublesome. Stan? I agree. There are a number of passages that are in my mind as clear as they can be to this and uh second peter 3 9 comes to mind the lord's not slow about his promise as some think of slowness but he's patient with you mm-hmm. not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance mm-hmm. i mean it uh it, it, it it's a theme that i see through scripture and uh, again there's a desire to be consistent and so it seems mm-hmm. once the domino of total depravity falls both extensive and intensive the others follow, and they are consistent. They yes. just don't seem to be grounded in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Again, I could be wrong. A lot of really solid believers who've studied the texts yes. disagree. I just want to get that out there, but I just can't yeah. can't get there. Right. 
And, and all we can do, Stan, is give our views. I mean, you know, we could yeah. be wrong, but I, we're Absolutely. doing our best. We're doing mm-hmm. our best. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And listener, thank you so much for hanging with us through this conversation. This was just, it was just a delight. And it was so interesting to hear um, from both of your perspectives on that. We will continue the conversation about engagement between these two ideas in our next episode. So if there's something that you missed or you really wanted us to address, um, go down to the show notes and you can find a spot to contact us and we'd be happy to take your questions. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you again, gentlemen. So good to talk to you. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be with you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.